0: Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science.
1: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Luca Giuggetti from the Friedrich Miescher Institute on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You are physicists by training and you obtained your PhD with Giacino Natoli at the European Institute of Oncology in Milan, where you combined physical modeling with quantitative experiments to characterize the inflammatory transcriptional response. You then did your postdoc with Edith Hertz lab at the Curie Institute in Paris. And then, in two thousand fifteen, you started your own lab at the Friedrich Friedrich Miescher Institute for Biomedical Research in Basel, and you are still there today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is: How did you become interested in biology in the first place, and then in pursuing a career in science?
2: Uh, Yes, so um, I think I I got involved. I mean, I got interested in biology uh, quite late compared to other (laughs) other people I know, because I studied physics in the beginning. And that I did a little bit of short research experience in theoretical physics, so not, absolutely nothing to do with biology. But then for different reasons, I, I landed um, in a lab at the University of Milan, uh, where um, they were characterizing um, nanostructure surfaces for biology, for biocompatible materials. So that's how eventually I got in touch for the first time, really, actually with, with cell biology and molecular biology, because I was, we were collaborating Uh, with a team at the European Institute of Oncology in Milan Um, and I was working more on the uh, material science um, side of these surfaces and and they were mostly culturing the cells and looking at what cells did uh, when they grew on the surfaces Uh, but then I got really excited about the biology part uh, itself and that's how I actually eventually uh, got a PhD position in in, uh, at the European Institute of Oncology uh, so working sort of at the interface between material sciences and uh, and uh, and molecular biology. And this was in the group of Paolo Milani back then. But then I uh, while uh, doing this, I actually bumped into uh, Joaquin Anatoli, who was uh, so still a group leader uh, at at the European Institute of oncology, uh, who actually was working on, so so his word, uh, leading expert in uh, transcriptional control and inflammation and uh, immune system and so and and he was actually looking for somebody who might help on project that they had in the lab that got a little stuck so they had a, a collaboration with uh, with Martha Bulik's lab uh, in Harvard Medical School and Manolis Pasparakis in Cologne back then and and, uh, and the idea was that they had some um so they they found that in NF kappa B target uh, genes there there were clusters of uh NF kappa B binding sites that nobody knew what they were used for. They didn't know actually what to do uh, with with this information. So Trakinoa proposed that I actually try to do some modeling for them, and that's how I, I started uh, yeah drawing drawing some cartoon models for uh, transcription factor binding and how it affects transcription. And then yeah, somebody uh, actually had to test these models, and that's how I I began uh, doing some experiments as well in the lab. And yeah, and that's how it all started. Yes. So So let's come random, random walk, I
1: would say serendipitous, or how how you call it. So coming to a sign that sends us around, very generally speaking, chromosome structure and transcriptional regulation. Um, uh, But let's start in the year 2014, because this is when I think thematically the work that you are currently focusing on started. So to paint the picture, this was the time when TATS were the new kid on the block and were discovered using 3C. Um, You worked with Heard and set out to explore TAD structure and developed a polymer model that can extract the full repertoire of chromatin conformations within TADs from population-based 3C data. Um, Can you maybe talk about this work, maybe also transitioning from what you shared shared, uh, just now um, and what you found?
2: Yeah. So, so yes, I got into uh, chromosome structure and transcriptional regulation coming from Joachim's lab because I, I so uh, during my PhD, I actually worked on uh, transcriptional regulation by uh, NF kappa B. So, and then I, I, I became interested. So when I, when I um, looked out for post-oppositions, I, I already knew I, I would like to work more on, on um, chromosome structure and, and, and transcriptional regulation because, of course, even back then, even before TADS were known, we, we knew that distal enhancers um, target um, genes that are very far away in the genome. And of course, there was a lot of evidence already that that, um, uh, that physical interactions actually matter in this process. And then um, so I then uh, joined uh, Edith's lab, uh, the cure in Paris, uh, well, right when I would say Alfej Norah, who was a, a student in Edith's lab, and now is uh, his own lab at, uh, at UCSF um actually by, uh, discovered the existence of TAS. So it was an incredibly exciting time. Um, so I uh, I mean I have to say even maybe before uh, we I, I knew about TAS, my idea had always been to sort of use polymer models to deconvolve uh, single cell trajectories of the quantum fiber out of, of, uh, of any type of C, uh, 3C data. So that was what I really wanted to do in Edith's lab. But then of course when FSH discovered TAS it was such a such a such an amazing discovery and such an important moment uh that sort of the stars converged once more and and i could uh, bring in my tools um uh to, to actually study chromosome conformation, transcriptional regulation in a very relevant uh, uh system um uh, which is actually back then was the um x chromosome so the x inactivation center that, that con- the locus on, on chromosome x that controls um, the essentially the onset and and, and maintenance of transcription of exist which is the master regulation of x chromosome activation yeah. And of course, I first discovered that there are two tasks that control uh, that, that contain essentially the regulatory elements of exist on one hand, and and of tsix, so the anti antisense RNA that controls uh, there's uh, uh, a negative regulator of of exist. On the other hand, and yeah, so that's that's uh, that's how I ended up uh, using polymer models uh, in the first place.
1: Yeah, what does it exactly mean, like the polymer model? What how? how does it describe the the tads or the chromatin structure well
2: okay well nowadays we know much more about the mechanisms that give rise to topological uh, boundaries in uh, in mammalian chromosomes and we know about uh, um, loop extrusion and uh, how it's blocked by CTCF sites and how this re- results in asymmetric contact preferences ac- across genomes but back then, the, the first um, sort of evidence for, for TADS was based, uh, well, in Elfesh's case, was 5C-based. Uh, so uh, And and in Bing-Ren's lab and also Jacques Moncaval in, in Drosophila uh, showed uh, that uh, the, the same similar structures uh, uh, as well in human cells and, and in Drosophila. But of course, the resolution of these experiments were, were relatively low. So we, we had a resolution maybe of 10 kilobases or so, uh, a little bit more even. And we w- were able to uh, see, uh, CTCF, CTCF interactions directly. This, this came later, actually. And so one of the questions that immediately, uh, the discovery of TATS, um, brought up was what, what are they, uh, what do they arise from? So what, how, what mechani- molecular mechanisms actually could give rise to asymmetries in, in how sequences interact in the genome? Um, and the other question, um, of course, was uh, what do they really represent in single cells? Because when, what three C uh, methods do generally is that they average over millions of cells, uh, at least in their population average um, um, versions. And so the, it's it, of course. One could use single cell experiments, for example, DNA fish at high resolution to look into the the structure of the chromatin fiber within single domains, which is actually what we ended up doing. But, but in the beginning, the, the idea was really to try to use computational models to under, to address the both, both of these questions. So what do the, what do tads arise from and could arise from and what they actually represent in single cells? Because one of the one of the ideas back then was that, of course these are sort of blobs that are relatively identical in all cells and 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 host pre formed contact using promoters and enhancers. to some extent that are pretty much identical in all cells. Um, and so so the idea there was to try to use uh, so polymers, so of course chromosomes are polymers, very long polymers. The chromatin fiber is a polymer. And so the idea had been to really try to use simulations of of polymers. And compare them to what actual 3C experiments uh, show in order to find uh, potential mechanisms that, uh, that that you can show on the toy polymer give uh, give us the same features and hen- hence identify potential uh, potential mechanisms that, that give us the structures that you see in, in, in 3C. And on and on top of that, um, these as a as a guru, this would actually have um, the, the advantage that uh, that these simulations describe. The actual uh, thermodynamic ensemble of conformations that that give rise to those average contacts that we observed in in three C, and hence we could use them to deconvolve the single molecule conformations.
1: So this was at first the physicist in you that tried to understand how tads were formed. Would you would you can uh, could it be described like that?
2: Yes. So I should also mention this was done in, in a collaboration with my uh, good friend and long standing collaborator uh, Guido Tiana, at the University of Milan, who is actually a, a biophysicist mm-hmm. now. I'm um uh, having said this yes it was our my my idea in the beginning to actually use the simulations to understand to get at at at, at uh, potential mechanisms um but of course we didn't get at the, at the actual mechanisms so this only came later um the what what these simulations showed i think is that one one important two important uh, pieces of evidence so the first was that um that you can create so that that these blobs or whatever regions of preferential interactions could be created just by sort of attractive interactions within each uh, domain, so that you didn't necessarily need something at the boundary that separated them, that pushed them away actively in order to create them. So internal interactions were just enough to to make them happen. And the second thing that uh, that they showed is that there were there was a su- substantial cell to cell variability in the structure of the chromatin fiber within each individual tag. So contrary to the, in the naive view that each tag was actually a little bit of a blob, so our simulations uh, showed, and then we we could prove using um, high resolution DNA fish um, at the XIC that uh, this was indeed the case that that there is very large amounts of, stru- of, of uh, structural differences between individual cells where the experiment is performed, So, which had important implications, I think, because it showed, at least uh, formally, that um, it's not like in every cell, every NASA and every promoter are in contact all the time and in, ad- in an identical manner, but rather that enhancer promoter interactions that occur within TANS are also stochastic events that are only occurring at any given time point in, a, in an individual subset of cells. So that, that, that was what, what we, what we could definitely show. Yes. And now, of course, now we know about the interactions, uh, that, that established us much, much more because yeah, you know, it's a very passionate story as well. Somebody else should tell you probably because it's, it's not, uh, uh, what I discovered, but, but rather comes from the Lenin lab. And then based on Kim Smiths and John Marcus as well. And its by who yes
1: So you then started your own lab. And you looked into the regulatory, like microenvironment of TADs. Uh, you developed a new algorithm named Catch. Um, maybe this also uh, ties into what you just shared with us um, that identifies hierarchical trees of chromosomal domains in high maps. Um, so how does this work, and what did you find using this new algorithm?
2: Yeah, so th- these so the early days of my of my lab were still in, in the phase where we knew and didn't know too much about CTCF and and loop extrusion and in how uh, tads are established, but um, and 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 often times we were sort of debating. So the field was actually debating on what is really a tad and and what and what is not a tad, uh, because even with relatively low resolution IC c uh, data sets, it's possible to see that um, it was possible to see that uh, that specifically um, highly active uh, tads, so uh, so located in regions of the genome where there are several active enhancers and promoters and CDCF sites. There were uh, sort of substantial numbers of substructures that one could start start perceiving. And so one of the things we did with, uh, uh, with my student, uh, with my first student, actually, uh, Zan, um, uh, was to um, try to maybe overcome this limitation of only looking at one of these um, layers and claiming that those are tads and the rest doesn't matter. But rather to to actually look at at at, at high sea maps with a more general approach, in which you, know, you just scan through the hierarchy of these structures and try. And, and the question we asked: so first of all, we 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 wrote a, um, an algorithm that allowed us to call domains at all of these levels, not just at, 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 at one scale. And and and, the, and and we asked the question using these domains called at various various resolutions whether there was any of them that had some uh, more interesting properties from the from the um, biological point of view. And this was actually quite interesting because we, we saw that, indeed, the, the, the scale um, at which what we would have naively called tads of regions of the genome that are around 400, 600 kilobases in size um, on average in the mouse genome have, have maximized uh, several, several interesting properties. So they're maximally enriched in CTCF. Clusters at their borders show higher um, co regulation of, of gene expression during development, um, and so and they're even more conserved uh, throughout cell types. So it was it was an interesting exercise to show that despite the fact that there are there is structure at all levels that in in in, uh, in mammalian genomes, indeed there's one scale or a few scales that emerge as being maybe more interesting biologically. And this scale is the one that is demarcated by strong clusters of CTCF sites, which is what I would now call maybe topologically associated mm-hmm. domain.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, so next you worked on an alternative method to a 3C called DAMC. And this is a method uh, based on DAMID, uh, which was uh, developed in Bas van Steens' lab. Um, why was it necessary to, or why did you want to have an alternative method to, to look at the same thing? Um, and uh, what did you find then using it?
2: Yeah, so this is uh, also an interesting story because, of course, uh, another of the uh, questions that, was ha- that was ha- were highly debated at the time I started in my lab was whether really TADs exist or aren't just a, a cross linking uh, or ligation artifact because of the way uh, 3C methods work um, might introduce substantial biases in, in, in the kind of in- physical interaction that, that we detect. Um, and so, um, especially when I started my lab at the FMI, Susan Gasser, who was director back then, so she kept asking me this question because we were very interesting. And so well, I mean, how sure you are, this is not cross-linking artifacts. So, so obviously, so this also motivated us to, to try to uh, think about other, other methods. And, and indeed, when I, when I was a postdoc in, in Edith's lab, when I was finishing, there were already some discussions with other uh, lab members. Uh, about trying to use them id as an alternative method to look at to look at um to look at chromosome interactions but then sort we dropped it because so, so this is not really feasible but then eventually uh, so one of my first students actually Josef Radolfi was uh, pro- so it was uh, um eager to to give it a try and indeed we uh, so we what we did um, was that we recruited uh, Dam, so the bacterial adenine methyltransferase, to specific regions in the genome by fusing it to, to Tet repressor and inserting at random places uh, Tet repressor small tet operator arrays, mm-hmm. um, and by essentially comparing the signal that you you get when uh, when other chromosomal regions get in touch with these recruitment sites of Dam, um, with some background methylation levels, uh, we were able to extract um, uh, profiles, so contact profiles. Um, that essentially uh, resemble, to some extent, 3C profiles, except except that they are based on on, on DNA methylation uh, instead of being um, based on cross-linking and ligation, which has the advantage that, A, A, the signal generation happens in living cells, and B, that it doesn't require any really biochemical procedure to, to detect the contacts except digesting DNA, with uh, with uh, an enzyme, um, uh, methylation methylation sensitive enzyme, so this reduces the number of potential biases. Of course, there are biases in in that too. And we were lucky enough to be uh, actually to be uh, in touch uh, with uh, with both um, uh, Basman Stinsel, who actually provide a lot of uh, interest uh, fundamental insight in actually how to how to do these experiments and encourage us to to pursue them. and also with without De Delat's lab who were uh, also doing something very similar. So we ended up collaborating. Uh, on this end, we were able to, thanks to Wouter, actually to compare these profiles based on methylation readouts with 4C profiles and to our bigger uh, uh, surprise, and, and we were expecting that they completely deferred because indeed of uh, potential cross-linking artifacts, but in, in fact, they were very, very similar and, and we were really surprised to see that and very reassured at the same time, because it meant that to some extent um but to a, to a large extent, actually, uh, cross-linking based 3C measurements uh, can be trusted as measurements of contact probabilities across uh, across mammalian chromosomes. So I think it was a, a ni- nice to have done this and, and showed this formally, at least. And so this was really also instrumental for what we did uh, later, yes.
1: Yeah, it's really nice to see because like in the episode that will have been, <laughs> I must have been careful how to phrase this, will have been published uh, two episodes before yours. I was talking to Alistair Bertinger and he like looked at TADS with microscopy approaches and now you are doing like, that's not the same, but a similar approach using another method, just yeah, investigating whether TADS are real and then how those uh, things um, or how those methods show the same thing. And it's really nice to see that like three I I wouldn't say like orthogonal uh, methods, but at, at least different methods really show the same thing, which is nice to see, right?
2: Yes, and I should also mention that in uh, in fajrs original paper, so he also performed quite a lot of high-resolution microscopy to actually whether really at the, at the TAD board boundaries that he identified at the XIC, there was, he could detect physical insulation. It was already quite clear that these things were really uh, heard that these separation of course of course uh, occurred in in single cells but of course i mean now with the orca and other uh, chromosome tracing experiments become sort of fundamental to to prove that these patterns um, uh, really do exist and they are essentially probabilistic in nature yes
1: mm-hmm. so another question that arises is whether those chromosome interactions are actually translated into a transcriptional output in some way and whether transcription is somehow affected by how the chromatin is formed so what was your approach you took to investigate this and what did you find then in the end
2: yes yeah, so so here I think I have to say so the so when I started my lab I, I we really wanted to to go at more maybe more functional experiments that could prove whether yes or no cr- uh, chromosome interactions are causal to transcriptional events um of course maybe a little bit naively but uh, but it was a yeah, sort of a I, th- I think I think so. When I joined FMI, FMI of course is a great place to do um, sort of high risk, high gain projects. And we and we thought uh, we we should really push a little bit the boundaries and, and try to see if we can do some experiments to test whether yes or no that boundaries insulate every announcer from every promoter. Whether yes or no, if you change the contact probabilities between announcer and promoter, you change the transcription levels and how you change them, and uh, whether we could show any causality in in the process. So I don't think we we really. Sh- we're able yet to prove formal causality but the evidence that, that we generate i think it's pretty compelling that and 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 i refer specifically to uh one uh project that, uh, that 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 we did um here where we were able to show that if you change the contact probabilities between an enhancer and a promoter through changing their distance in the absence of any other confounding effects you do change uh, transcriptional levels um, substantially and and there is actually a, a relatively smooth function that 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 converts contact probabilities into changes changes in contact probabilities into changes of, of transcription transcriptional levels and 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 this was uh, uh i mean probably one of my favorite projects ever so it was always my dream project i have to say and, and Jessica Zouin in the lab. Um, so who joined? was actually, she was the first post of joining my lab and, and she took up a, a super ambitious project, which eventually uh, ended up well. <laughs> in <Backing laughs> nature. Yeah. <laughs> all yes, exactly. But, um, but it wasn't uh, for granted for sure. Yes. So because the idea that was actually to try to move. An enhancer away from its cognate promoter and to insert it in many different positions in the genome without, so in a place in the genome with, with, without any other confounding factors. So no CTCF looping, no other enhancers, no other promoters, but at the same time to do it in a place where the, uh, where there weren't um, any heterochromatic uh, histone modifications or not in a lab. Which is not easy to
1: find, probably
2: no there's uh, no there's not so many of such places not so, not so many such places so we found two or three in in, in mouse embryonic stem cells, which is the system that we use uh, but they weren't good enough in the sense that uh, there's still some residual ctcf sites here and there that actually make loops even in um, in, in in boring places in the genome so so we had to also clean up uh, the these this, this region from ctcf sites in order to have sort of 500 or so kilobase playground where we could do this this uh, dream experiment. Something.
1: And the and transcription so, must then purely dependent on the distance that the enhancer moved away from the promoter?
2: Yes, I think. So in this very, uh, sort of very simplified locus, which actually doesn't exist endogenously, so it's a totally artificial system, but I, I think maybe I mean, one, one of the things I learned in physics is that it's also good to try to simplify and, and, and reduce the uh, number of uh, degrees of freedom to the minimum if you want to isolate some effect. So at least in these conditions, uh, if you change the distance between the, in this case, the SOX2 enhancer and SOX2 and, and SOX2 promoter, um, you, you do monotonically decrease. So if you increase the distance, you do monotonically decrease the effect that the enhancer has, um, on, on the promoter and, and, uh, and, the function that sort of um, so the correlation between changes in contact probabilities and changes in transcriptional levels is also very interesting because it's, it's actually a sigmoidal function that um hence allows to some extent uh, to buffer away changes in contact probabilities when the enhancer promoter aren't too far away in, in in linear genomic distance, but but allows them to. Uh, Transmit smaller changes in contact probability to so much larger changes in in enhancer effect when they are further away. Um, so typically now, at least, in the, I mean, I'm I'm talking a little bit too co- causally. Maybe this the correlation is not necessarily causation, but this is what we observed when only changing the contact essentially. essentially. Um, so yes, and, and we think that this might be a very elegant way of uh, uh, making sure that an enhancer and promoter do talk to each other while they're separated by distances uh, that are not too big, typically inside two ta- TAT boundaries, but also to get insulated by TAD, but the small changes in controversy you get at TAT boundaries uh, when they're far enough in, in in the genome in genomic space. And so so and and then we have, I mean we we have a, f- a few ideas of how this nonlinear relationship might 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 occur. They have to be tested. So the one that we propose actually uh, suggest that there might be some cooperative effects somewhere, very similar to also what Alister Butiga uh, proposed in a in a an companion paper on, on on eLife, where they also s- performed some some modeling of of this effect. Um, so we we both think that there might be some sort of cooperative effects. So either chemical cooperativity or biochemical cooperativity, like in the case of Alistair, or some futile cycles that he also proposed. So in 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 the way so or some. So what we actually think might be happening, but this still needs to be tested, is that sequential interactions between enhancer and promoter might, so a few of them might actually be needed in order to, for some processes downstream to actually happen with high uh, efficiency and and hence transmit the information to the to the to the promoter. And this might be what what drives um, cooperativity in the system. But we we have to test this, um, and notably using live cell imaging, I think this will be key.
1: Yeah. And then you investigated the TUT function further and combined it with your earlier focus and looked at the TUT neighboring that of the non-coding transcript Xist, which controls X chromosome inactivation. So, what did you exactly do to investigate this TUT function here, and what were the results then?
2: I presume you're referring to uh, to my postdoc work here, because I think in in um, so this is still uh, the of so polymer simulations that that I really needed. Slump. I think so what what we well what we did i mean the connections between what what i did back then and, and what we're doing right now is that now we know um i mean back then when i when we used polymer simulations to deconvolve the single trajectory of the chromatin fiber at the at the exist tsix locus uh we um so we we found that they are highly variable as I, as i said before but we had no ways of sort of looking at their dynamics in living cells so we always left with the with the question how how much time does it take for one cell to change its conformation of the actin fiber within a, within a tad from an elongated one to a compact one so this was the question we had already several years ago and there's no other way of knowing that except that and um, they actually measuring it using live cell microscopy which is actually what we ended up doing uh, in my lab as well um and we were um, able to show that these sort that that um, that, um the, the confirmation of, uh, of a, a, tad, at least of the tad that we're, we're looking at is actually highly variable in time and, and, uh, with context between contacts, I would say, I should say maybe proxy, physical proximity between sites that are separated by 150 kilobase in the absence of any, uh, intervening CTCF loops, CTCF driven mm-hmm. loops that only last for a couple of minutes and, and occur every 10 or so minutes. So, this is also very much in line with what Anders hansen has published uh uh last year so it was sort of our two papers were, were out uh, last year we we measured we both measured the dynamics of chromosome uh looping inside the tad, looking essentially at uh two viewpoints in live cells uh and monitoring how long they take to be uh, to become close in space how long it takes for them to uh to uh, to uh, separate again and how this sort of fits with what we know about the uh, dynamics of, um, uh, of loop extrusion in living cells based on in vitro and in people measurements that, that were previously uh, previously performed. So I think this is very important as well because we, it sort of showed that. So it sort of, uh, yeah, it, it sort of shows that the, the single TAD is not just, uh, um, so again, it's not a blob. It's actually a, a very, uh, variable. So we already know it was highly, va- the conformation of chromatin fiber inside TADs were, very variable from from cell to cell, but now we also know that it's also very variable in time. And and if you look at a mouse embryonic stem cell over the whatever 15 hours or so of its cell cycle, we know that interactions within a TAD between two losses that are separated by 150 km, uh, kilobases or so, which are which are this is maybe representative distance of enhancer-promoter interactions as well, sort of assemble and disassemble so often that um, um, it's I, I mean. That is, I mean, the, the 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 time it takes for them to uh, assemble and the time it takes to disassemble are, are, are infinitesimally shorter than the than the cell cycle, which also might suggest. So if I can add something, that, that also answer promoter interactions, although we haven't measured them yet, or, um, are also dynamic and which adds a new uh, interesting layer um, to, to the
1: yeah. I just wanted to ask, right? There is. Um, the, at one point, there is like in three C and high C and all the experiments that you're doing that are on a population level. There is this average over all those cells, and now there is also like this second dimension or third dimension that is time, right? So exactly. you have to con- yeah, you have to control for all of that.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, indeed. I mean, the 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 time, of course. I mean, we appreciate more and more thanks to the work of many labs actually have used live cell microscopy in single cells and a single molecule resolution that pr- that uh, the processes that 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 occur on promoters and enhancers are, are dynamic and, and transient and highly stochastic. So promoter bursting is, um, um, of course, if you look at average level of expression, but geez, this sort of hides population average and time averaged, sorry, if you look at population average uh, mRNA levels, this hides the time variability that occurs in single cells where, where, where each promoter essentially bursts in time, al- alternating periods on, on and off in the, and we know that the Processes that occur at the promoter are also stochastic. Transcription factor binding is very transient, and uh, assembly of cofactors is also transient. In and we, what we do not know how, is how all these processes are integrated in time in, in order to sort of give the desired uh, transcription level, uh, either in, in time or, or or at the population level. And what we now think we we are starting to see, although uh, I mean we haven't measured enhancers and promoters directly yet, so I'm trying to do this, of course, is is that. Uh, also this dimension of enhancer promoter contacts or physical proximity that must be required to transmit physical uh, biochemical information is also transient and, and dynamic so uh, it would be very exciting to see in the next couple of years how how much dynamics there is in the proximity between an enhancer and a promoter whether this relates to any extent with the onset of a burst or they're totally uh, uncoupled and uh, and uh, yeah and and how
1: you just mentioned the uh, dynamics of promoter activity uh, what is this relative to? Is it only the cell cycle or what other factors uh, play a role in this that you maybe have to look out for That's in those experiments?
2: I think the, ma- the main, um, both Anders and, and our experiments uh, show that what really controls the timing of interactions uh, is the is the loop extrusion activity of cohesion This is cohesion and mm-hmm. CTCF. So if you, if you, if you don't, if you degrade cohesion, uh, in, in mouse embryonic stem cells, where we do our experiments, we see that the distances, but well, this was known the distances between loci actually become larger. But we also see that they, of course, their, their interactions now become less way, uh, way, way less frequent. At the same time, if on the opposite sides are sorry, uh, in, on the contrary, if you have CTCF sites that face each other, Flanking the viewpoints that we use for for uh, for imaging, then we see that these uh, viewpoints essentially lock on top of each other for much longer because of the formation of the stable of a stable loop between the two CTCF sites uh, that is mediated by extrusive cohesion. So, um, and and both Anders and ours experiments agree on the fact that the duration of such a molecularly looped state um, is uh, between maybe ten and thirty minutes so mm. it's it's longer but it's transient and clearly the presence of CTCF sites and of course of exclusive quiz makes uh, these encounters very uh, different yes um so, so is it this... is No, go ahead no no that's, that's uh, yes. uh
1: so what is it what you're working on currently and what is your plan let's say for the next five years or like the next grand application <laughs>
2: <laughs> well i well let's see so so one of the things we are really interested in understanding is whether these findings uh, that that we um, so the findings uh we with the Sox2 enhancer and promoter can be generalized to other enhancers and promoters of course so does any enhancer promoter pair whether cognate in the genome or totally unrelated show the same non-linear relationship when you change contact probabilities and, and 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 does transcription change with such a strongly non-linear function of of the contact probability? so so this is clearly one of of the one of the highest priorities for us is actually to extend these these uh, uh, experiments um, to more promoters and more enhancers, and if possible, to also extend them technically by doing library type approaches in the genome. And this is one of the main limitations at the moment. It's very difficult to insert very large numbers of different sequences at different positions, uh in the genome because you always rely on relatively low efficient uh insertion efficiencies whether you use crispr or or transposases so the, the numbers are always in the low percent or even less actually most of the times so this is something we're really working on um uh, very uh, very much and we hope to be able to uh, yes to put up some new measurements soon somehow um and 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 another thing we're really pushing hard on is a uh, um uh, is uh, live imaging of both chromosomal interactions and the molecular processes that occur at enhancers and promoters, notably transcription. So we would really like to measure whether um, enhancer-promoter proximity correlates with uh, bursts uh, or not at single cell, single molecule level, and whether this and whether and how this is changed if you now change the frequency and duration of, of contacts between the enhancer and promoter, for example, by modulating either cohesin levels or or, or introducing CTCF loops, so we 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 really would like to sort of keep combining a little bit the single cell, single molecule uh, view with with more systematic unbiased bias measurements um, in uh, uh, that use genome engineering to actually look at how if you vary one or two variables, so for example, the distance, or if you change contact probabilities alone without changing the distance, if you change the sequence of the promoter, the sequence of the enhancer, the CTCF looping pattern, um, what happens to transcription? So the idea would actually really. Yes, to, to combine these levels and use, keep using modeling, of course, to, to bridge between the two in order to reach a, maybe more, more quantitative understanding of, uh, of long range transcriptional regulation. Because the hope is that there are general rules. So it's not all about which sequence you're looking at, which enhancer you're looking at specifically, which promoter. Uh, maybe there are, of course, but, but it, my hope is always that as we saw in the case of SOX2 and, uh, enhancement promoter system and that if you sort of, do unbiased measurements and, and in, in conditions where you can minimize confounding effects. So you can, you can, you can find maybe quantitative general uh, relationships that, that, that control long range transcriptional regulation. Let's see if this is really true.
1: So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. And the first one, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer?
2: Uh, not yet, luckily <laughs> not, I think it's, it's very exciting. Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's a very exciting ride, uh, since I started my PhD, I think so far it's been really, really fantastic, I think. And so no, no dead ends. I also, because we, I think I'm lucky enough to, well, to work in a field that has, uh, that is very dynamic and where things happen every, every, every few weeks. So there's always a new discovery, a new concept. And, and, and so this really makes it very exciting and also the ability to to work in an environment that really sort of supports our interdisciplinary uh, approach uh, really makes it exciting so when when things don't go well in lab you can always you have always have some models that you can focus on and they bring you inside and then you can think about new experiments to test those models so it's, it, it is really exciting i think mm-hmm. and, and um so dead ends not really maybe when i started at the fmi um, i mean it was uh, it was really uh sort of a daunting task to set up a full uh, experimental program because we because, I, I mean, I'm, as I said, I'm a physicist by training, so of course I did quite some experiments when, during my PhD in post but I'm not a full uh, experimental person. But I, I'd say, I mean, I was, uh, between the environment provided by the FMI and the people who were uh, maybe crazy enough back then to actually join my lab, this worked f- uh, fantastically well. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's their merit, not mine, if the experiments have worked so well. So, <laughs> yes, no not real dead ends, I would say. Okay. Yes.
1: So in the last 38 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview?
2: Um, Yes, I think, what can I say? (laughs) (laughs) Our most important finding, I think, well, my lab's most important finding, I think, is that uh, that there are, um, yes, there are maybe, at least we identified one general, um, I would say, uh, not I wouldn't call it law, but relationship that links two quantities in live cells. Um, in specifically, this is transcription output and contact probability between an enhancer and promoter. And that in and, and I think this is key because it sort of provides uh, um, uh, some sort of quantitative framework to explain how an enhancer might activate a promoter at, at a given distance um and also reveal that if you do experiments that are quantitative enough uh you can get uh, quantitative outputs that can be even interpreted using models but it's hard to reduce as this, this still this is the most important thing I think the most yeah the most important thing that we've done I believe very humbly is that we are uh, we managed to combine both the single cell live information of processes that happen in single cell in time with what we think might be the mechanism that gives rise to this this general general relationship. Um, Yeah, so I'm very proud of my life for for this, yes.
1: Yeah, thank you, Luca, for your time and for being on the show.
2: Thank you so much in the first place.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it you can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.